Romans 6, chapters 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We die to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we, <clears throat> For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. The word of God. Well, we are in a series of messages right now that I'm calling Biblical Pictures of the Gospel. When we try to articulate the gospel in a nutshell and in such a way as to give real understanding, we find that we can't do it. That words are woefully inadequate to say, this is what the gospel is, in just a few sentences. And the Bible doesn't even attempt it because it can't. But the Bible gives us some pictures of the gospel, and taken together, these pictures give us some understanding of what the gospel is. For example, one of the pictures that the Bible paints is a courtroom picture, which the Bible talks about the gospel in legal terms. And that was the message last week. And in a nutshell, sin is a breaking of God's law. The Bible uses words like, transgressions or trespasses or iniquities. These words carry with them the idea of law-breaking. Sins are crimes against God, and so as sinners, we stand guilty before God. And the appropriate consequence of guilt is punishment. This is all legal language. In the divine court, the charges against us have been read, the verdict given, and the sentence pronounced. But Jesus, though, who is perfectly innocent, died for us, and in so doing, as Isaiah says, he was punished for our transgressions, and now because the sentence for sin has been carried out in Jesus, we are declared innocent 
in the sight of the law. That's why the, what the Bible means by justification. There's more to it than that, but that's a summary of the courtroom picture. There are other pictures in the Bible, like the family picture, the slavery picture, and so on. And we'll get to those in the next few weeks. Today we're going to consider the life and death picture. The idea that we are dead in sin, but God makes us alive in Christ. The Bible frames the gospel in these terms. But side by side with it, the gospel places another picture. And it's the picture of thirst. Life and death and thirst. We're going to see how the Bible frames the gospel in these terms over these next moments. And just as we traced the framework of the legal gospel to its beginnings in Eden, so the language of life and death also begins there. God had placed Adam and Eve in the garden to work it and to care for it, and their descendants, their offspring, were to spread through the earth and care for it. But Adam and Eve's life wasn't just work. Their work would happen in the context of a close and personal relationship with God. They would love him and worship him. God would love them and rule over them. But love must be freely given or it is not love. And so God accordingly provided a way in which Adam and Eve could choose to love him. Do we trust him? Do we trust his love for us? Well, we know what happened. Adam and Eve chose not to trust the word of God to them when they were tempted, but they made their own decision and ate the fruit of the tree. Now, God had said to them previously concerning this tree, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. What's interesting is that after they ate the fruit, they were expelled from the garden, had children, and lived for many years. But didn't God say that on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die? Does God not keep his word? Well, they did die. And it was a very real death. We say that they, they died spiritually. And I used to think that that was a cop-out, that it was a weak way of explaining a seeming contradiction. But it's not. Because the Bible uses words like life and death in much the same way that we do. Some years ago, I had a good friend. His name was Martin, and he was a skydiving instructor. And he kept wanting me to do a jump, but I wouldn't. Refused. But once, though, I went on what is called an observer ride in which you go up in the plane and watch somebody else jump. So we went into the plane, Martin and I, and the plane gradually climbed up to 9,500 feet, which is equivalent of really, really high. (laughs) Now, the plane was small and actually had the door taken off so you could easily get in and out. And when we got to jump altitude, Martin said to me, okay, now fall over onto your left-hand side, which I did. And when you fall over in a small plane, my head was out the door. And then my friend Martin climbed out of the wing, hung on to the strut, and then jumped. And I watched him fall, and I waited to to see his chute open. But after waiting a full minute, it still hadn't opened, and it got a knot in my stomach, thinking, oh no, he's falling to the ground, and he's died. 
Of course, what I didn't realize is that you can fall for six or 7,000 feet without opening your shoe, to which time the plane is miles and miles away, and I can possibly see his chute open. And of course, he was just fine. A year later, I did go. But the jump for beginning jumpers is only 3,500 feet. And when you let go of the strut, what they tell you to do is make an X with your arms and legs and arch backward. Uh, but of course, what I did is fold it up forward and went, ah. <laughs> and, and if the little pilot chute that opens and then pulls open your main chute, if it had not opened, there's, I would not have had the presence of mind to open my emergency chute and... My first jump certainly would have made an impression. <laughs> but when my chute opened and I knew that, it was, that I was okay, I absolutely loved it. Never had a sensation like it, floating in the air a kilometer off the ground. Martin had more than 100 jumps under his belt. He loved to skydive, to free fall, the rush of air, the sense of flying, the freedom of movement. Martin would say... You haven't lived until you've gone skydiving. How many of you have ever, gone, have ever gone skydiving? A few. Most of you haven't. But you're living. You're breathing. You walk around. You have a pulse. You're taking in food. But we know that living is more than that. We know that there is a level of life beyond simply existing and breathing. You're at a five-star resort and you say, you know, this is living. Someone cooped up in their basement playing video games six hours every night. What do we say? He has no life. The Bible uses the idea of life in the very same way. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they ruptured their relationship with God. They became separated relationally from God, estranged from a holy God by their sin. And life became for them an unhappy and a hollow existence. Something fundamental to their nature was now gone. The real close face-to-face -face relationship with God in whom is life. And to be estranged from God is to no longer be really living, but to be dead, spiritual zombies walking around but not really alive. In the 16th century, John Calvin wrote this, Under the name of death is comprehended all those miseries in which Adam involved himself by his defection. For as soon as he revolted from God, the fountain of life, he was cast down from his former state in order that he might perceive the life of man without God to be wretched and lost and therefore differing nothing from death. Sin kills. Ephesians 2 says you were dead in sin. And ever since Eden, the human heart has longed for life, but the longing is unfulfilled. It is a need unmet an existence unsatisfying. And the Bible also speaks of this need as a thirst. A need for God is a thirst. Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. 
Psalm 63, read for us earlier, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So what have we done then with our thirst? Jeremiah chapter 2, God laments the sin of his people, and this is what God himself says. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. If you've looked around lately, and Ray has drawn our attention to this again, people are desperately thirsty. People are digging wells all over the place, trying to find that water that will quench that thirst. Wells of success, wells of achievement. We dig wells of busyness. We dig wells of marriage or family. We dig wells of comfort. We dig wells of convenience and of a certain level of living. We dig wells of beauty or physique. But they're all dry wells. And if we count on these things to quench our inner thirst, we discover that we're really just drinking sand. These wells are broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Water, And you see these thirsty people. You see them at work. You know they're unhappy. You live beside these people. You see them frantically building wells. You see them at school trying desperately to fit in and be accepted because that will quench the thirst. You may see well diggers around your table at mealtimes. You might see one in your mirror, far from God, people dead in sin, desperately thirsty and unable to find what will quench that thirst. Then Jesus comes, God's Son from the glory of heaven sent to die for the sins of the world. The Gospels record for us the ministry of Jesus that culminated ultimately in his death on the cross. And there are things that he did and things that he said along the way. And I'm going to do a quick flyby of the Gospel of John this morning. In John chapter 3, a man named Nicodemus comes to see Jesus by night. Nicodemus is a religious leader of the people. But he's intrigued by Jesus and he wants to know more about him. Nicodemus has seen some of Jesus' miracles. He knows intuitively that such a man must be of God. They're going to talk about what it means to be a part of God's kingdom. But Jesus prefaces the conversation by saying, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There is a sort of new birth, not physical, but nevertheless a new life begun after being dead for so long. Nicodemus is surprised. He doesn't understand this language of new birth. He's been digging the well of religion. He thinks that the surest connection to God comes from keeping the rules of God, keeping the commandments of God. And he has dug that well and worked at it so hard that he's come to the point where he is now a ruler of the Jews, a member of the religious supreme court. 
But the life of the new birth is not something that we strive for. It is something that we are given. It's something that happens to us. So Jesus also says to Nicodemus, unless one is born of water, that is natural birth, the first birth, and the spirit, spiritual birth, a new birth, second birth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, where does this life of the Spirit come from? Well, God is the giver of life. Life only comes from him. And so what we see a chapter later is pretty surprising. John chapter 4. Jesus travels from the south of the country to the north and passes through the province of Samaria in between. Now, most Jews would take the long way around to bypass Samaria because Jews and Samaritans hate each other with a mutual racial hatred. But Jesus doesn't bypass. He travels through. And along the way, he stops to rest behind a well. And as he rests there, a woman comes to draw water. And Jesus asks her for a drink. And she, like Nicodemus, is surprised. She's surprised that a Jewish man would speak to a Samaritan woman and actually ask her for a favor, ask her for a drink. But Jesus says to her, as they talk about water and thirst and drink, Jesus says, if only you knew who was asking you for a drink, you'd be asking me for a drink, and I would be giving you, I would give you living water. And then Jesus says this, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in him a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. And in John 17, Jesus defines eternal life as knowing God and knowing Christ. And as they converse a little further, it turns out that this woman has had five husbands and is now with a man but not married. What is she thirsting for? What well is she digging? Is she living? Jesus is saying to her that in him is the knowledge of God, which is life, and that he is the source of the water that will permanently quench thirst. Now, John chapter 10, Jesus calls himself a good shepherd who knows and loves his sheep and whose sheep know his voice and ignore the thieves and the robbers. And Jesus says then, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life abundantly. In other words, that they might really live. Jesus also says in John, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. And the Jesus that we see in John's gospel proclaims himself as the one who gives water so that we will never thirst again. It is water that wells up to eternal life, life that consists in the knowledge of God. Now, if that is true, if Jesus is the thirst quencher and the life giver, then there is one, only one possibility, and that is this, that Jesus has somehow reversed the effects of the sin of Adam and Eve and the sinfulness of hum- humanity. If in Jesus we who were dead in sin have been given life abundant, 
And if in Jesus we who desperately thirst for God can now know him, then it must be true that Jesus Jesus has made right the almost indescribable wrong that Adam's sin has entrenched in the human condition for thousands of years. But how did he do that? Here's gospel. Jesus, who was sent by God for this very purpose, died on the cross. And at his death, he took upon himself the judgment of God for our sins, and he experienced the consequences of our sin. He died. He felt the forsakenness from God that sin inevitably brings. He said, I thirst. Only he experienced these things without ever having sinned. But that's not all. As we've heard from his own lips, having taken from us our sin and its consequences, he also gives to us, or rather, God having placed our sin and its consequences on Jesus, God then gives to us the privileges that accompany Jesus' sinlessness. We read this morning, or Jim read for us, Romans chapter 6, which says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And look at how the human story ends for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is marvelous. Revelation chapters 21 and 22. And he said to me, oh, and he said, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Then in chapter 22, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Chapter 22, verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Now all that remains for us now this morning is to ask and answer the questions. Are you living fully? Are you thirsty? Is there some longing deep in your soul that you've tried to satisfy but can't. Are you digging a well? If you are not living, is it possible that you have not understood the gospel of Jesus Christ? That you have not understood the person of Jesus Christ? 
If you are digging a well, what is that well? At what place, job, pleasure, achievement, relationships, at what place have you stopped and said, here I will find water, here I will dig? And perhaps only you know what that well is. Perhaps others around you can see it as well. Christian, ask yourself, am I living? Am I digging? Even as Christians, sometimes we look for something beyond Christ to satisfy ourselves. If you are not a Christian, do you realize that the greatest need of your body and soul is for life in Christ? And that your greatest hunger and desire is to have your thirst quenched in him and by him. Will you then, Christian and otherwise, will you not turn from your digging? Will you not go to the spring of living water? And will you not receive from him the water of life? The gospel is that we were dead in sin, separated from God and desperately thirsty for him. And that in Christ, by his death and resurrection, we have been given life and the offer of water, freely given and without cost. That is the gospel that we live. And as we heard, the gospel that we share and preach and also give out without price. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you who satisfy, Jesus, in whom is life, and in fact, Jesus, who is life, we are so very grateful for what you have done. We are thankful for your obedience to the Father who sent you in order that we may, in fact, have life and be restored to him. And Father, it's because of that, it is through Christ that we can speak to you and be in relationship with you and begin to taste again your love for us and begin to learn what it means to love you in return. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for doing for us what we could not do. We bless you and give you not only our thanks, but this life that you have given to us, we now give to you, to use for your glory, to live in joyful service to you. For the sake of your glory, but also for the sake of a broken, hurting, lost and thirsty world. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a hymn that we don't sing very often but expresses...